Hello there, Alaskans, wherever you are. Welcome to the Must Read Alaska Show. Coming to you from somewhere in Alaska. This is the place where we talk about, you guessed it, Alaska. Where we keep the mainstream media on their toes and where we are standing up for what's right and a world run by leftists. You can find out more by heading over to mustreadalaska.com and also checking out the Must Read Alaska YouTube channel for some really great content. But first, let's get this party started. What's good, Alaska? This is Scott Levesque, and you're listening to the Daily Dose of the Must Read Alaska podcast. Thank you for joining with me today. It's been a beautiful Wednesday here in Anchorage, and it is cold, but we are moving into the Christmas holiday season, so I hope you guys are doing well as we enter what can only be described as a season of a bit of craziness, some fun, and hopefully there's a lot of hope and happiness with all of you. Listen, before we get started in today's podcast, I just want to say thank you to our our listeners out there. You guys have been incredible. We're at 130 Apple Podcast reviews, and we're trying to get to 150 before the end of the year, and you guys have made this possible. We are really moving closer to that. And if you haven't had the opportunity to give us a five-star review on the Apple Podcast, please take a second and do so. We would greatly appreciate it. Also, if you want to do that extra mile thing where you write a written review, we would love for you to do that as well. We have been blown away by the feedback, all of it being generally positive, and we read every one of those. So again, thank you guys so much. We really do appreciate it, and it's because of you we're able to put all of this content out. Well, let's get into some news, and we're going to go directly to Anchorage right now and talk about what happened on Tuesday night at the Assembly meeting. And surprise, surprise, the Anchorage Assembly, well, they voted unanimously on Tuesday to end the mass mandate or the emergency ordinance, really, early. Here's the thing. There's a lot of speculation, but let's go through a really quick timeline, okay? So what ended up happening, there was an increase in COVID hospitalizations, positive tests, all of that. Really, it started in mid-September and worked its way through all the way through October. And so what ended up happening is clearly the assembly has been trying to mask, mask, Mass. This has been something that has gone back and forth between the assembly and the public considerably. And here's the deal. It started, the speculation started around September 18th and it kind of pushed from there. There was a lot of deliberation and then the mask ordinance was essentially brought forward. And what created from that was a real staunch public outcry, which concluded really what it concluded was October 12th. In between that time, there was public testimony that happened for six nights and it was looked like it was going to continue to happen and happen and happen the problem for the assembly was as this was going on numbers begin to fall now it wasn't dramatic but you could see that the crest of this latest kind of spurt of positive tests and hospitalizations was the crest was there and the wave was beginning to downturn and of course as the assembly, you can't do that. You can't let that happen because what ends up happening? Well, the idea of masking and the idea of that being the key indicator and also applicator of how we decrease this, quote, increase in COVID cases, it would prove itself to be wrong. So what did they do? Well, October 12th, that was a Tuesday rolls around, and the assembly made the appearance that they were going to do just business they had to get done because for six days straight, they were hearing public testimony regarding this particular mask ordinance. Well, what did they do? Well, they met October 12th. There was nobody in there. 
They were going to continue to hear public testimony on that 13th, which was a Wednesday. And of course, surprise, surprise, not really. They spring this emergency ordinance, which was the mass ordinance. They vote on it. It passes. October 13th rolls around, which is that Wednesday. The mayor vetoes it. It kicks back to the uh, to the actual assembly. And of course, because we have an extreme left-leading assembly, they override the veto with a supermajority and enact this mass mandate. Here's the problem, okay? And we can call it anecdotal, but a lot of us were out and about in Anchorage. And I would say that this was the least policed, least adhered to mask ordinance I'd ever seen. I mean, anywhere you went, restaurants, department stores, you name it, there was at least half of the people in there not wearing a mask. And even as they passed the mask ordinance, you saw a considerable drop in COVID cases, both hospitalizations, COVID case counts. So what happened? Well, of course, on Tuesday night, the architect of this mask ordinance, Meg Zelotel, decided to declare a victory. Quote, what it was intended, meaning the mask ordinance, and set our city on a better path. Now, this is what she's saying. She declared victory, saying the mandate did what it was intended and set our city on a better path for health of the community. Now, here's the deal. That's actually not true. This is, this is a false equivalency here. The mask ordinance did not directly impact the decrease in COVID cases. No, what happened was, is a combination of many factors, none of which have as much influence as many of the members would have you believe the mass ordinance had on this, this downturn in COVID cases. It's just, it's just not true. There's a couple reasons here for this. I'm going to give you a couple of what I think. Number one is the fact that by sheer number, by sheer number, the cases were willing to decrease. The other thing was the incredible amount of testing we were doing. The state of Alaska was in the top 10% of states testing. We had, and this is per population size, we, we had an incredible amount of testing in the state. An incredible amount, considerably. So even if you did not have uh, COVID that, that had you go to the hospital or you were in the ER and you were testing positive, that's still a count for case counts. Here's another thing. We've talked about this numerous times, and this is the thing that always gets me. This is the reason why having just uh, generalized data does us no good. And again, I tell you this, and this is something I'm going to harp on because as we move into the future, I am telling you this is going to be an ordeal. And it's this. Nobody ever dug, or let me refer, let me rephrase that. There was no publishing, particularly by the mainstream media and or the legacy newspaper media, about the detailed underlying data points in the generalized data being published, particularly on the ADN. And what I mean by that is this. The ADN narrative for the long time, mainstream media narrative, was all those who were testing positive for COVID were generally thought to be unvaccinated people. And why do we think that? Well, here's the deal. When we were talking about the mask ordinance itself, when we were talking about vaccinations, all of it was geared towards the main culprit and the bad guy, if you will, were the unvaccinated. They're unwilling to protect people. They're unwilling to get vaccinated, thus putting everybody else in harm. 
which again, logically makes no sense, right? Because if you're unvaccinated, you're at more harm from those who are vaccinated based on the science. But we disregarded that. Well, if the narrative forever, particularly since the vaccine came out, was the unvaccinated are the problem, when you start posting case counts and increases and ebbs and flows, right, of COVID, so you have these spikes in COVID cases and decreases, it's, it literally looks like a bell curve. The general idea is, is that that narrative perpetuates throughout. So the increase in this second round of COVID spike cases obviously had to be the unvaccinated people, right? Well, we're starting to realize that's actually not the case. That many in that spike were vaccinated people. But you never understood that because the, the actual data that was being printed in ADN or talked about in mainstream media were not subsets of that main data. My point being is this, when you say that there was 1,200 cases of COVID, but you don't actually distinguish between how many of those cases were vaccinated versus unvaccinated people, or you do in the beginning, but as the narrative changes based on the data point, you refuse to actually tell people that, it becomes a problem. And you also start to see a decrease in COVID count, whether it's because testing in terms of how much testing is going on decreases, whether it's because those who get the vaccination decide not to get tested and chalk it up to maybe a flu or a cold instead of COVID, whatever it may be, there's more to the story than just we put in an emergency ordinance for mandatory masking, even though anybody who was out there could see there was a, let's just say even a 45 to 55 split, 55 who were wearing masks, 45 who weren't. The bottom line is this, it is a false equivalency for the assembly to say, hey, the mandate did what it was intended to and set our city on a better path. It's just wrong. These are declaring political points when, when in all reality it wasn't. But that's how politics work, right? That's exactly why they do what they do and they say what they say. Because at the end of the day, it's not about the truth. It's about political points, because if the truth was really the factor in which we disseminate all information, then the ADN would have printed out much more than they did in terms of numbers. The ADN did a great job of putting together infographics that told you how many people were using hospital beds. What they decided not to do when they told you how many of the ICU beds in percentage points were being used was distinguishing the fact that the ICU percentage points included not just COVID cases, but regular ICU bed usage, whether it was heart attack victims, whether it was, um, you know, extreme medical case uh, people that were that were in there, whether it be because they you know lost a hand or whether it was a severe injury due to a snow machine accident or four wheeler accident, like. That wasn't distinguished. The idea behind the messaging was freak people out and just give them general raw numbers as opposed to subsets of data points. And if you've been listening to me for any sort of time, you know this is my thing. You know this is my thing because, listen, I have a background in science. And it's very clear. You can't just take raw data without understanding the exact underlying data point that would prevent, predict, or help produce what you need to know about the relevant information at hand. Again, the case in point is this. When you start giving out raw numbers 
1200 1400 800 750 whatever it is in terms of total covid cases per day and you don't break that down versus unvaccinated versus vaccinated but the narrative thus far has been unvaccinated people the problem what do you think people who are not into the underlying data points or don't get that information think wow we got a lot of unvaccinated people that are getting covid is that the reality no and we've talked about just simple organizations doing general sort of surveying and we're finding out that more and more people are coming in with covid that have been vaccinated in booster shot that's, I mean, that's just, the, that's what's happening. So great. We don't have any more mass mandate. I guess we're going to be able to have Christmas together. There won't be any issues, but it's not the end. And, and here's what we need to do. If you're listening to this, just remember when you start hearing information, start asking questions. Okay. I don't care if it's Socratic method, deductive reasoning. I don't care what it is. Use your brain. That's all I'm asking for because you'll start understanding that things are more complicated or at least have nuance than what we're just reading. And that's the problem, right? We're headline people. We live in a society that's based on headlines and 140 characters, or I guess 280 now. That's what we are. We don't, we don't really care about the nuance in life. We don't care about the fact that there's much more gray than black and white. What we care about is the black and white because it makes it easy. It helps us with our political hit points. It helps us retort our political opponents. It helps us give really great one-liners or helps us give us great sound bites. But the reality is that's not the case. And, and you know what the real travesty is? Is that people are led astray and you have family members fighting and you have people you know, fighting against each other in the streets and you have all of these, these um, you know, tribes that are formulating from this. And the reality is this. You wouldn't see that if there was actually nuance in the world. You just wouldn't see it. But here we lie. Here we lie. All right, off that soapbox, let's move on. Listen, there was an interesting article that was, uh, that was a guest contributor, Shane Lasley from North of 60 uh, Mining News, uh, put out this really interesting article, and we used it on Must Read Alaska. It's called Infrastructure Bill Good for Miners, but Reconciliation Bill Cast Shadow. Here's the deal. It's a discussion about the $1.2 trillion infrastructure investment and jobs, job, jobs Act. Man, I don't know what my deal is today. Sorry, guys. And, and it's an outlook into how it's going to affect Alaska and its mining sector. I thought it was really great. And why am I bringing this up? Well, as many of you know, I've been harping on the Biden administration because of its, its bottleneck and its squeezing of Alaska's ability to really develop it's natural resources. We're seeing this in day one, the moratorium on those leases up in Anwar. We're seeing this in the mining uh, field. We're seeing this in the, the lumber and, and timber field. I mean, we're just seeing it everywhere. We are, Alaska is being squeezed out of its ability to have economic viability in the future. It really is. So let me read from the article here. The $1.2 trillion Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act brightens an otherwise gloomy outlook when it comes to federal policies that impact Alaska and its mining sector. Quote, I believe this is truly historic for our state, Senator Lisa Murkowski said during a November 17th address at the Alaska Resource Conference. 
While the massive infrastructure bill passage was chalked up to a political win for President Biden, the billions of dollars to be invested into upgrading and expanding Alaska's sparse infrastructure will have an outsized impact on a state rightfully declared Alaska's last frontier. Dan Sullivan pointed out that Alaska has fewer road miles than Connecticut, a state that is 120 times smaller. We are a resource-rich, infrastructure-poor state, he said during the annual conference hosted by the Resource Development Council of Alaska. Listen, here's the deal. Sullivan's 100% right. We are a resource-rich and rather infrastructure-poor state. And I agree with him. I agree with him. And I think the infrastructure is going to create a lot of jobs here in Alaska, at least for the short term. It still doesn't address a huge issue, which is the fact that Alaska is being stripped of its ability, its autonomy, to actually develop resources, to explore, develop, and, and continue to utilize those resources. Now, the article goes on and talks about that's why the entire Alaska congressional delegation, all Republicans uh, across the 49th state, were behind the legislation. And he quotes Murkowski again. It's going to be a lot of money. Billions of dollars to construct and modernize our roads, our bridges, our ports, our airports. It's just not going to be the opportunity for better roads, but to see more of them. Great. Wonderful. I'm sure that's going to bring jobs to Alaska, and I hope it does. I hope this is not one of those things where there's uh, strings attached to this money in terms of you know, hiring from outside the state. If this money's coming into the state, it should be spent in the state. It should be uh, spent on Alaskans, not outside interests. Absolutely. But my, my problem is this. My problem is, is we still have an issue. We still have an issue with Alaska not being able to develop fully its resources. The Biden administration has still got a stranglehold. And while I understand the infrastructure bill is there to help with our roads, more importantly, our port, our Anchorage port needs desperate money to help really, to help really keep on track with the supply chain issue. But more than anything else, we need to be able to develop the resources. And while I agree, the infrastructure bill and the money that's going to come into Alaska will help with all those areas of infrastructure, roads, ports, bridges, and so forth. The economic viability of our state still remains in its natural resources. So while this is great, we're going to have billions of dollars into the state. It always remains the question, does it stay in Alaska? Does it stay for Alaskans? And does it, will Alaskans always benefit from it? Those are three questions. My fourth question is this. When does Alaska get to take advantage, get to take, uh, get to take control of the natural resources that the state has to develop them? Because that's, more than anything else, that's the long-term viability of the state. It always will be. Tourism, oil and gas, and its other natural resources. Whether we like it or not, that is the case. And so I'm curious. I mean, you're going to see an infrastructure bill that brings billions into the state. The question I have for the every Alaskan, do you think that's all we need? I feel like this is bipartisan. I feel like the opportunity to develop natural resources is a bipartisan issue. Both sides of the aisle can agree to that. I would hope because that's what this state has been built on. If I'm wrong, let me know. Let me know in the comments. Let me know on Facebook in the comment section or on YouTube. But, but the deal is this. 
while we have billions of dollars coming to the state, if we set aside my fiscal responsibilities hat when it comes to federal funds, why aren't we looking at long-term natural resource development, exploration and development? It's still sitting there. It's the, it's the elephant in the room. And just because the state is going to, uh, to be you know, inheriting, well, it's not even inheriting, it'd be given from taxpayer money. I don't care what the administration says federally. This is, I mean, man, I still want to see Alaska develop its natural resources. So it'll be interesting. I'll be curious to see what happens uh, moving forward. Uh, obviously, we got three more years of the Biden administration, which, I mean, doesn't look like they're going to be uh, Alaska friendly anytime soon when it comes to that kind of natural resource development. So we'll see. All right, let's move on. Let's go back to Anchorage here and talk a little bit about a story Suzanne wrote today. It's entitled Family Partnership Charter School Wins 10-Year Renewal from Anchorage School Board. And this was an interesting story that was developing. Uh, I'm going to read from Suzanne's article here and we'll talk a little bit about it. After the Anchorage School Board had earlier postponed action on the recharter application by Family Partnership Charter School, the homeschool parent-driven student-centered charter school has won its 10-year recharter with an enrollment cap of 1,850 students and an opportunity to increase to 3,000. Now, why this is interesting is just the philosophy of the school. And I'm going to read to you from the actual principle here. Parent after parent, student after student, staff member after staff member proudly testified on behalf of our school. As I sat and listened to these testimonies, my heart filled with pride and love for our students and their families, wrote FPCS principal Jessica Parker. It is the highest honor of my life to partner with you as you lead your students to their best possible futures. Our charter states our school is a bridge between homeschool students and formal education. We are also a bridge between homeschool students and their futures, which are full of possibilities. The interesting aspect of this is this. The Anchorage School District now has an issue. It's got over $60 million in gap money it needs to fill. There's been a there's been a windfall of six over sixty million. I think it's either sixty five or sixty eight million that they have to account for, and this charter school really bridges a gap here between the homeschool uh, family and and a bit of formal education. And there's an interesting ideological clash coming here, which is sort of a mix between um, ASD and by extension its teacher union, and this idea of bridging. A homeschool education with a little bit of formal education involved, meaning what we consider a standardized school. And it's interesting because they're seeing success at this school. They are. They're seeing success. And let me read to you this here within the article because I think this brings an interesting point. Some of the Anchorage School Board are leery of homeschooling in general and the uncomfortable that so many are fleeing the traditional classroom in Anchorage to work under the guidance of FPCS. In the end, the board supported the renewal due to the pressure, the pressure of multiple testimonies in favor of it, voting 4-2 to two with board member Dave Donnelly recusing himself because the children attend the school. And I think there lies the concern, and really the concern when they postponed the vote to recharter, which was many in the ASD or formerly in the ASD school district, have pulled their kids out. 
there has been a, a rather significant drop in enrollment. And as a matter of fact, I, I believe a lot of that is contributed to the fact that ASD, how they handled COVID. In addition, I think that's what's contributing to this 60 plus million dollar shortfall they're having. Whether it's homeschool, private school, or whether it's FPCS, uh, I think the school board, and quite frankly, the school district, and the school's, I guess the teacher union, are all concerned about the fact that parents are now seeing other avenues for education for their kids. And so I think what continues is the next step is what happens about school choice? What happens? What happens if money falls the student and not the, the address or the school district? What happens if students now have the opportunity to say, you know what, my student's worth $15,000 a year and wherever that student goes is where that money's going to go? That would be devastating. Talk about a, a windfall of money. But here we go. But I'm glad that the school board decided to research, to recharter, I guess is the better word. And it'll be interesting. I'm, I'm really curious how ASD is going to move forward, especially after what happened during the COVID, uh, the COVID pandemics, for lack of a better term, um, on ramp, off ramp at ASD. You know, the other question really is, is this the reason why, uh, it, could this be the contributing factor for many different things when it comes to the shakeup in ASD? I mean, that is really the question. What is going to happen because of this? That's, that is the question. I know that the superintendent is going to be leaving. Could it, the fact that there's a 60 plus million dollar shortfall be a, a contributing factor to that? I don't know. Perhaps. Perhaps that could be the case, but I don't know if, 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 that's 100% the case. You know, 60, let's just say, I think it's around 67 million. And so, could that be the reason why Dina Bishop has decided to, to, you know what? I don't even want to deal with that. I don't know. I don't know if that's the truth. But there's a lot of things ASD is going to have to kind of figure out and, and move forward with. All right, guys. Well, that's it. We had three stories today. A lot of it had to revolve around, you know, obviously the assembly on Tuesday night. We're, we're I guess, removing or revoking the emergency mandate, masking mandate, which, you know, again, talking a little bit about the infrastructure bill and the money bringing into Alaska, which is going to be a lot of money. It's going to be a lot of money. And, you know, does that sort of, in the short term, quell any sort of frustration from Alaskans regarding natural resource development? I don't think it should. I think Alaskans, this should be a bipartisan issue, and Alaskans should realize that resource development in this state is the key to economic viability moving forward. And, of course, the fact that we just went over this uh, this family partnership charter school and the fact that them getting this renewal means that they continue to move forward with their philosophy, which models a, a homeschool uh, partnership which many, many of the students that dropped out of ASD now have entered into a homeschool curriculum. And it makes sense that the school board's a little bit wary of it because they're losing students. So what's the long-term impact of that? And, and, you know, is that some of the reason why Dina Bishop's saying, you know what, I don't want to deal with this anymore. I don't know. Maybe I'll try to get her on here. That'd be great.
All right, guys. Well, if you haven't a chance, go ahead and go to Facebook and give us a like on there. We're trying to get to 25,000 before the end of the year. Uh, if you haven't, go ahead and uh, subscribe and hit the notification bell on YouTube. And you know what? we got plenty of other things. we got Twitter, Parler, MeWe, Rumble, the works on there. So you can catch us all at the handle, Musk Read Alaska. That's all one word, Must Read Alaska. And uh, listen, until tomorrow, guys, take care, Alaska.